All right, we are back in the first few verses of Acts chapter 6, the same passage we looked at last time. So I'm going to kind of quickly summarize the text again and then look at the application side of Acts 6 from a completely different perspective than we had last time. And uh, remember that we learned here there were two groups of Jews in the large and growing Jerusalem church. There were the native Holy Land Jews and then there were Jews that came from the wider Roman world. They had different primary languages and they grew up in different cultures. The Hellenists were Greek speakers who had really limited experience with cultural Judaism of the Holy Land. Even their Old Testament was a Greek translation. That's what they used and it wasn't the Hebrew. And from the Hebraic Jews um, their life was quite different. They had a different primary language which was probably Aramaic for the most part in terms of how they spoke to each other. That was a Semitic tongue that was it's akin to Hebrew but much more widespread. Aramaic was really the dominant language the kind of the lingua franca from Egypt all the way to, to India for, a, for a quite a period of time for centuries. That was the common language that different groups of people spoke to each other. By the first century uh, Greek had become the dominant language of intercultural communications but the Jews still spoke Aramaic and several other smaller groups did. Um, The Holy Land Jews their culture was shaped and formed by rabbinic law after the return from the captivity. It was a uniquely Jewish culture. But Jews from the other part of the empire were mainly just Jews by faith. I mean they established synagogues and they worshiped on the Sabbath and did all of that but their day-to-day life was much more influenced by Greco-Roman culture. So there's always a little tension there. There's just uh, they're different you know strangers. But we already learned from Acts that the church was so full of love for Christ and for one another that anybody that had extra land or possessions would sell that and give the money to the apostles and they would distribute it to the poor. And then we learned in Acts chapter 6 there was also a daily food allotment for certain needy people especially widows. And we learned last time that a complaint was made to the apostles because it seems like some widows were not being included in this aid this food aid program that they had been running And it just so happens that all the women that were excluded from that were Greek speaking uh, Greek culture Jews from the broader world. So they took that as discrimination and brought it up to the church. So here's Acts 6.1. Now at this time while the disciples were increasing in number a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So last week we talked about this from the standpoint of discrimination and what should be done when complaints of discrimination arise. But now we're shifting to a new subject, same text, just a different subject. And this event actually sets the stage for reorganizing the church. And it has to do with um, church, the mission of the church and keeping the main thing the main thing. It sounds like up until now the apostles were the one that the ones that had been administering this daily food distribution for widows and anybody else that was indigent. And this is a large church many many thousands of people maybe tens of thousands of people. So we're talking about a lot of work Uh, but the apostles they have a direct commission by Jesus to make disciples of all nations. That's their calling. The apostles job is to make disciples. That's what they're called to do. Uh, 
Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is a job that just might never happen if the apostles get so caught up spending their time serving bread to the needy. Now should a church serve bread to the needy among its members? I think so. I think that would be a wonderful thing. It's a great idea. Is it the main thing? Is it the main purpose of the church's existence? No, it's not. So when this issue comes up, it it must have been fairly significant significant because they're calling a big church meeting about it. So it wasn't like a couple people and oh, we'll fix that for you. It was a real issue going on in the community. It looked like discrimination, but from what the apostles say, it seems like the Greek speaking widows were simply overlooked. Um, So they address it immediately. And when the apostles discussed this among themselves, they realized that they were doing too much, too many things that were not the main thing. So they were doing a lot of good things, but way more than they could properly handle with just the normal amount of time and energy that human beings have. So this overlooking of the Greek widows revealed a, a big gap between their desire to do good and actually doing a good job at it, right? So they realized they were spending a lot of time not doing what they were really tasked by the Lord to do. So, verse two, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may, be, we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this is a key text for our subject, which is today it's, we're really gonna talk about the functional division of labor in the church. So everything is done well. And the central purpose of the church is not neglected. So let's talk about some important words that we find here. There's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament and it's very significant and it appears in a noun form and a verb form and every, every other form that Greek can use a word. Its basic form is diokonia, diakonia. It means service, diakonia. We see it in verse one, we see it in verse two, we see a form of it in verse four. So in verse one, it's, it's just translating the daily serving, that idea. In verse two, it, it's not desirable for us to neglect the God in order in, to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. There's an infinitive version of it, to serve. That's diakonia. Then in verse four, where it's translated ministry, the ministry of the word. You can translate that service of the word. That would be perfectly fine. Ministry actually comes from the Latin word meaning to serve. So that's how that came into English. So, you know, sometimes we think of ministry when we hear of the ministry as some kind of highfalutin kind of a thing, kind of like important people. One reason for that is because government offices in Western countries are often called ministries. Um, like the foreign ministry and the ministry of justice and that sounds kind of important huh but that just means they're offices that serve those purposes for the government whatever the government might be so the ministry of justice he serves the king in regard to justice for example a church minister is a guy that serves the church now down through the middle ages when church became very hierarchical and there was a lot of money and big important positions and fancy clothes that ministers wore it began to take on that same kind of thing as the government kind of a a, a lordly idea the minister you know the but 
but a minister of a church is just a servant of the church. That's all it is. That's what it's supposed to be. So this, this is a, 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 the minister is just a guy that serves the church. That's a Christian idea. This idea of service being your primary duty as a, as a pastor or a shepherd. Both Jews and the Greeks considered a diakonos, a servant, as a lowly position. It's really a, a less worthy person. And Christianity is what changed that. Jesus changed that. Jesus turned that kind of thinking that a servant was a lowly person, he turned that kind of thinking upside down. So there aren't higher and lower people in a church. We are all called to be servants of one another, just in different ways. So I think one of the most important things is how Jesus uses the word diakonia about himself. Luke chapter 22, verse 25 He's speaking to the disciples and he says the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors but it is not this way with you but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant for who is greater the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves is it not the one who reclines at the table but I am among you as one who serves. So Christ is a diakonon, a servant. And the greater man, the man of rank, he is sitting at the table and he is served. Well, Jesus says, I'm the server. I'm the server. He takes the lowly place. Matthew chapter 20, verse 27. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he puts himself in the lowly place. The first among them should imitate him and be like the slave. And he uses the verb form of this word we're talking about right there in Matthew 20. So Jesus came to serve, not to be served. We all remember how he washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper where he should have been the one receiving all of the care and honor at that place but they were pretty caught up with themselves. That's why he gave them that little speech about service. In a quite remarkable passage, uh, some of you may remember from Luke's gospel, Jesus draws an illustration from a wedding feast. Actually, it's the household master who's gone to get married and he's coming home from the wedding feast. And in Jesus' story, something happens that never would have happened in real life. So it's kind of shocking. This is in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes back and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whose master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table And will come up and wait on them. What? The the master of the house is going to do what? He's going to gird himself to serve. And have them recline a table. And come up and wait on them. Now you know he's talking about himself. That's what's so shocking about this. That would never have happened in real life. And he says that's the kind of master he is. Not only in his humiliation on earth. But he's talking about when he comes back in glory 
So he will serve his faithful servants who were ready for his return. That's the point of that little story. I'm not sure even how to process that because he shouldn't be doing that, you know, in my mind. It's like, well, you're the Lord of glory and in glory you should be sitting on your throne and we'll worship you. And, and he's saying, no, I'm going to have you guys sit down. I'm going to serve you. I don't know what that means exactly or how it's going to look, but that's what he's saying right there. It's pretty amazing. One thing I know that it means for sure is um, serving tables like that is a very good thing to do. It's an honorable thing to do or he wouldn't do it. When he says he will come up and wait on them, the word wait on is a verbal form of this word diakonia. So King Jesus, he's a deacon too. It's a great and noble thing to serve. Though he is the king of all things, he came among us as a servant and even in the kingdom when he is recognized as a king, he tells us there he will serve as well. So folks, the worship of God is not because God is self-centered and needs all this attention and stuff like that. It's simply right and good that we adore him who made all things. He is the infinite creator. Everything that exists is dependent on him. It's just right that he be worshiped. It's not because he's self-centered. Even in glory, he will delight to serve us, to bless us. Serving people is what a good king does. And that's what our king is going to do as well. I can't wait to see how that looks. I'm really looking forward to that. So, now that we have kind of a good grasp on diakonia as a word filled with great spiritual meaning, let's talk about church structure today. There's clearly a twofold division in ministry that we see here in Acts chapter 6. So the apostles and then these excellent men who can free up the apostles by taking on this mercy ministry themselves to take care of those in need. Nothing is formalized yet at this point but Acts chapter 6 is usually and I think quite, quite properly viewed as the first formulation of the church structure that we find in the rest of the New Testament. So what is the apostles main task in verse 4? It says we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They're going to teach the Bible. So it's on preaching, teaching and prayer. That's their primary focus. That's their spiritual focus. These other godly men are to take over things that would have pulled the apostles and was pulling the apostles away from the tasks they are called and trained to do. And that means God's work gets done in the most effective way. And of course as the church spread and there were, this is the only church in existence at this time, as the church spread, the 12 apostles w- w- would be stretched across the Roman Empire and beyond it. There's no way they could do all of that work. So um, they appoint godly men to take over that primary role. Now they're not going to be apostles, but that was the plan that there would be men that were devoted to prayer and the teaching of the word. That would be their primary function in the church. So those men uh, would have had the same problem if they tried to do everything themselves. So this twofold ministry, this twofold division of labor that we see in Acts chapter 6 became the norm over time. And we see that in the rest of the New Testament as the church progresses. Some men were chosen to focus, focus on the spiritual life of the church, teaching, praying with people, counseling people. And others made sure that other tasks were done so they could focus on those things. So we see in scripture what is essentially two offices. 
And we get hints of this throughout the epistles, but these offices are very clearly pointed out and explained um, in terms of qualifications for them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we're going to look there real quick. And what Paul says in the very first verse is, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So this guy is called an overseer, and the Greek word there is episkopes, which we get our word episcopal from, right? So a, uh, an episcopal church is a church structure, a denominational structure that has a bishop at the top, and he oversees everything. So um, overseer is a very good translation of this actual Greek word. It's very much what it's saying. So in the New Testament, now it's not structured like an Episcopal style church in the New Testament. The overseer, an elder, and a pastor are all the same office. There's two offices and that's just three different names for the one office of spiritual oversight. It's very clear um, from the way these words are used interchangeably in the New Testament that um, even in the same passage that all of these terms refer to the same thing. But they're not apostles Uh, They don't have apostolic authority but they are the spiritual directors of the church responsible for sound doctrine for the care of the flock's spiritual needs and church discipline. And the qualifications are pretty high. So verse 2 Paul says an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, that means he doesn't like to punch people, be gentle, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money, that's a big one in our day, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited, full of himself and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil who was full of himself. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there you go. So those are the qualifications. Churches that ignore those qualifications for their spiritual leaders are really making a big mistake. They do that at their peril. Most of these are character qualities. Some relate to experience in exercising authority like managing your household well. And probably the one qualification that really lines up with Acts chapter 6 verse 4 related to what the apostles said their job was is the ministry of the word idea. They can teach or apply the Bible accurately in a variety of situations. So they serve the word if you will. The ministry of the word. So in Titus um, in a couple books over there from First Timothy, Paul gives another list of qualifications for elders and as part of that list, Titus 1.9, he says they are to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's an important part of the overseer's job to protect the truth, teach the truth, recognize error and turn it away. Uh, We recently had a a heretic show up at AFBC trying to lead us astray. That was his purpose for coming and we quickly recognized what he was up to and we protected the flock. So that's our job. That is an elder, pastor, overseer's purpose. That's their function in the church and I'm very thankful 
for godly shepherds who did that for me when I was a young, enthusiastic, and somewhat impressionable Christian. You know, you get all kinds of weird ideas in your head and somebody comes along and sets you straight. So uh, they pointed out error and they kept me on solid ground. That's really, really important. That is what uniquely sets apart the overseer pastor. He's concerned primarily with the ministry of the word and prayer. That's his focus. Okay, then in 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, we have a word likewise. So there's another office, likewise. And the first word of verse 8 is deacon. Hmm, deacon, that sort of sounds like that other word diakonia that's right that the word deacon comes from diakonia which means to serve so that's exactly why that um, name is given to this other office so there's the overseers and there's the diacono the diaconon the, the, the server that's deacons we call them um, a deacon is one of the two offices in the church so there's overseers and deacons and again overseer elder pastor that's all the same thing you really see it clearly in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 when Paul is writing to the church and greeting them and he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and the deacons see there's there's only two offices he doesn't say the overseers and the elders and the pastors and the deacons he just overseers and deacons that covers both the offices there because an overseer is a pastor or an elder So here are the deacon qualifications. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Okay, similar qualifications really to the elders there. Above reproach being really at the heart of all of these things. And then in verse 11, now here's something different it's another use of the word likewise women must likewise be dignified not malicious gossips but temperate faithful in all things wow there's women that must be why we have a deaconess board in our church it that's exactly why because of this verse here now some commentators believe these are not deaconesses there's some people that believe only men should be any kind of leadership position in the church any kind of office that these are actually the qualifications for the deacons wives that's what they would say that's a fairly common view uh, down through church history I don't think that's true for two reasons why would the deacons have qualifications for their wives but the elders not have qualifications for their wives that doesn't really make sense and people try to explain it away but it's not very persuasive and the use of the word likewise it's pretty clear that Paul is using that to make a distinction because he says overseers likewise deacons and now likewise the women so to me that's three specific groups of people he's addressing there so these are deaconesses they're they're deacons but they're female right it makes a lot of sense to have deaconesses because serving the poor and taking care of the needy widows and all of that might involve situations where ladies are just better suited for that than men and we know from church history there were deaconesses right away. In fact there's even a, a pagan reference to, to deaconesses early early in the second century very early. Uh, a rather famous letter from the Roman governor Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Hadrian describes he describes how he tortured two deaconesses and he called them ministrati which would be the uh, there's the minister word that because he's writing in Latin of course to find out what Christians did in their meetings so he tortured them to find out and it's a pretty interesting story what he comes up what they told him was 
really beautiful <laughs> and wonderful. That's what we do. So um, anyway, I also believe that uh, Paul is referring to deaconesses because he goes right back and continues the general qualifications for deacons. So he just kind of drops in that line certain qualifications that women should especially should have that's kind of focused on their, their nature. And uh, then he goes right back into the, the general qualifications. He just had special qualifications for the gals. Now I am not saying that women are more inclined to be malicious gossips than men. Perish the thought that I would think such a thing. Maybe that was a problem 2,000 years ago but I'm sure it is no longer the case. Okay. Well he doesn't specifically tell the ladies that they can't punch somebody's nose either. That's for the guys because maybe they're a little more inclined in that sort of direction. But anyway um, I, I suspect that's a male thing. Any. But the Greek phrase malicious gossips it's really just one word. Diaboloi. Malicious gossips the diaboloi. That's a Bible name for Satan. Diablos right? Because he is a slanderer. That's how he's known as. So just by way of application you should know that being a mean girl is being satanic. That's actually what Satan is like. Well I better move on before my scalp gets removed from my head. So verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So again the standards are very similar to the elder standards in terms of character. There's really no daylight there. And deacons certainly may be as proficient or even more proficient in the Bible and Bible knowledge as an elder and equally gifted teachers to elders but that's just not their primary area of service as a deacon. So again that's not to say a deacon or any Christian can't be an effective Bible teacher. The church is blessed and strengthened by every believer that knows the word of God well and wants to share it and is solid in their doctrine and will teach it. Uh, Every church needs teachers like that. We all do and we all love that. Every church needs that. But being a deacon isn't limiting ministry it's just making sure that a particular aspect of ministry is being taken care of that's what it's all about so it's not a lesser than position than the elders it's just a different kind of service one that allows the elders not to be overwhelmed like the apostles were in the Jerusalem church if we didn't have wonderful deacons and deaconesses like we do in our church it would be a I was going to say nightmare but it um let's just say it would be a very different place. It would be not what it is today. Um, They're essential, essential parts of our church. And how that works out practically isn't stated much in scripture beyond what we just talked about. Different churches have different ways of handling things. In our church the finances for example are entirely in the hands of the deacons. Now not all churches work like that. Some have elders that have oversight over finances as well. But in our church the pastors and the elders really have nothing to do with financial decisions. When we have elder meetings we don't talk about money and budgets and stuff like that. Almost ever. I mean it might come up just wondering how things are going. But other than that we don't deal with those issues at all as elders in our church. If and now if we would like to see something happen that might involve money or see something that we think would be in a good investment ministry wise we can bring that to the deacons but it's actually their call in our church. In finances we place ourselves under them because that is their responsibility. That's how we've set it up. So we don't even have to think about money 
and uh, we can devote ourselves again to these other things. So the elders, now they exercise in our church uh, oversight over the teachers and teaching and doctrine and uh, curriculum and books that people want to use in a Bible study, things like that. That's our area of responsibility. And in our church, the deaconesses are a separate board. Now, some churches don't have deaconesses. Those are the ones that say it's the wives of the deacons. Some have one board with men and women on that board, but we find it really helpful to have um, two different boards, um, um, the boy deacons and the girl deacons, the men and the women. And that's because there are special needs for the women that they can really focus on, and we love that, that that can happen that way. So we all cooperate with each other, but we have distinct boards for that. That's how we operate. The Bible just doesn't give that kind of detail on structure, but we think our system works pretty well. Actually, everything depends on the character qualifications being met for the people that are in those positions. If, if people are godly, truly godly people and above reproach in their life, it's all going to work pretty well. So even if there's tension or disagreements about things, we kind of hammer them out together. So, so that, those qualifications, that's your concern and your responsibility to nominate and put people into these positions that are, and vote them in, uh, that are, meeting these qualifications. Uh, You have to make sure that there are good people in place. So in Acts chapter 6 verses 2 and 3 the apostles asked the congregation to choose godly men for the task of caring for the food allotment. So in our system at our church you nominate officers and they do have to go sort of through an approval process because the elders might know something about somebody you don't but um, and they'll talk about that with that person. But every church finds their own way to function within these parameters. But in our church you nominate and you vote in these officers and they are responsible to the congregation not just the elders. Some structures of government don't work very well that churches use and um, others work better and we pick the structure we think works the best and it seems to have worked very well for us for many 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 years decades. So we're pretty happy with the way we do it. I think one example of a structure that doesn't work well, a lot of Baptist churches, this didn't used to be the case, but in the last century it kind of developed this way. The pastor is the only elder and the deacons are serving like the elders and, and, and then everything's sort of thrown together. It's kind of a mess and, and the pastor has this incredible burden to be all things to all people and have gifts that, that appeal to everybody. It's much better to have a plurality, multiple pastor, elders, shepherds, overseers, a group of them who keep each other accountable. And obviously we all have strengths and weaknesses that are different. So as a team, a lot of good things can happen. But in the Baptist system, that's why one reason a lot of pastors don't last very long in a church and they move around every three years. At the average length for a pastor is three years in some denominations. They're constantly on the move because there's conflict and they're all by themselves and they get kind of overwhelmed and then there's a lot of tension. But when there's a, a plurality of elders, they support each other, encourage each other, challenge each other, confront each other and keep each other honest and it works very well that way and, and we're not alone. So I've always got people that are with me in ministry. So that's a really helpful structure. If I was by myself all at the top, well, all kinds of horrible things could happen in my head. <laughs> that would probably wouldn't be a good thing. So it's really a, it's really a, 
a good way to follow. One thing the New Testament does say about every church when Paul talks about different churches is he, it's plural, elders, the overseers. He, he always talks that way. So I know that that was their system. So we would kind of reject the one man at the top idea uh, for church leadership. I don't think that's very good. And so we, we have our system. I think it works, works really well. But every church has to make their own decisions about those things. The key, as I said, is having godly people in place. Okay then. All right, so this section then finishes out from verse five. Let's pick it up there. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. We talked about him a little bit last time. And these they brought before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and many of the and a great many, many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's pretty exciting. So good results coming out of this all the way around. And in this Acts 6 portion, Luke does what he does best. He tells about a particular incident, this widow situation, a particular situation in the life of the early church, and he uses that to introduce key individuals that are going to have a big impact later. So earlier chapters we saw he did that with Barnabas he kind of introduced Barnabas related to something else and then later on in the book of Acts Barnabas is going to be really important and that's that's just what he did there and he's doing the same thing here in chapter 6 he's introducing Stephen and Philip as two of those seven men these two men are going to be key players in the next several chapters so Stephen's going to become the first Christian martyr and and that really begins what we could call act two if this is you think of this as a drama because what did Jesus say he said you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and and then Judea and Samaria and then the remotest parts of the earth so the church right now is in Jerusalem the narrative is going to start moving toward Samaria so that's kind of what's going to start happening as we get into more more deeply into chapter 6 the the events that are going to happen are what push the church out to to hit Samaria and other parts of the um, and then remotest parts of the earth so we'll see how that transition begins in Luke's book here next time all right let's pray Lord you are a God of order and we thank you for giving us in scripture the uh, a good order for church governance for how we work together how we function together We pray that we would be faithful parts of that, whatever our role might be, that we would be wise in choosing leaders for ourselves, that we would hold them accountable to these high qualifications, and we would understand that they are servants of the church and not masters or lords. And Father, we just thank you so much that Christ is the perfect example of all of that, a a humble shepherd, a shepherd who loves tenderly, but who keeps high standards before all of his people. We thank you and we give you glory and praise in Jesus' name, amen. All right, next time we'll move forward. Acts chapter six.